Swab the decks and hoist the sails. The guns on board be neat in some proper manner. Pieces of eight and a fine wench on your arm. If you work, be not too shoddy. Careful not to flounder too badly, though, or you may have to dance the hempen jig. As we see you to Davy Jones, the Jeffy, my boy. On with the show. Well, shiver me timbers. To our listeners from across all regions of the planet, welcome once again aboard the Robin Hood, flagship to the world's one and only cooperatively inspired charity podcast network, WPRPN. Broadcasting to the stars and beyond, you're listening to episode 123 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. I'm your host, as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Bringing his own unique brand of intelligence to this week's discussion, we're joined by none other than Los Angeles-based social media and broadcasting personality, Dr. John Ilias. From all things ufology to the ABCs of podcasting, to his time spent working with the late, legendary radio show host, Art Bell. We aim to cover it all over the next approximately scheduled 90 minutes. So buckle up and prepare yourself for the Robin Hood's latest, most unpredictable trip out upon the high digital seas. And that's what it's very much looking like it's going to be here. Yet another unpredictable wild ride out on the high digital seas. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for dropping by. This is episode 123 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. And as always, I'm your host, Ship's Chief Communications Officer Jaffe Ryder. Last time we checked... We did, in fact, have Dr. J standing by there at the ready, so assuming things haven't completely gone to pieces on us here, tech-wise, we should still be able to hear from him. Dr. J, are you there? Absolutely, my friend. I am here, live. Oh, that's great. Well, we've been looking forward to this for a while now, so it's great that you were able to make it of course without too many problems which almost has got me sort of worried to this point so we finally did manage to get the streaming end of things worked out though from a uh, technical standpoint we had been struggling with that for some time and uh, finally it looks like we've got that all under wraps uh, I'm not sure what sort of issues you've run into over the years with uh, with your show, Dr. J Radio Live, but uh, the OBS software can really be a, a handful at times. Have you uh, had to, because you do live stream most of your shows, if not 
if not each and every one of them. Uh, uh, how many, how much in the way of technical issues have you come across over the years? Honestly, at first it was very difficult to get used to uh, because I'm not the most tech-savvy person. But once uh, Tommy Shutter, uh, who you know uh, as Tommy Shutter, Tom Schaefer, was able to put in some of the artwork that was needed, then I knew exactly how to play the slideshows and to play the exact audios I wanted. Uh, for instance, as you know, just about every guest I have on, I'll have them say their name and they're listening to the show. For instance, I'm Governor Mike Dukakis and you're listening to Dr. J Radio Live or I'm Art Bell and you're listening to Dr. J Radio Live. So what I would do is I would interchange it, coming into break, coming out of break, etc. But I got to say, times when it was 100% my responsibility, uh, it wasn't the most reliable. Fortunately, some of the nice folks at Late Night the Midlands, specifically the managers, Dady and Carol, Kate, Daryl and Katie Neely have been doing a phenomenal job on broadcasting via Open Broadcasting System through YouTube as well as running the show on Late Night the Midlands, which is also broadcasting simultaneously in the United Kingdom from Deprogrammed Radio Network. Uh, isn't that something? I've never heard of Deprogrammed Radio Network. Late Night in the Midlands, of course, yeah, pretty big deal here out on the interwebs. So we've even had people talk to us in the past, yourself included here, just quite most recently, suggesting maybe we should uh, hook up with them. But for the time being, at least, I guess we're happy to to uh, stick it out in an independent, purely independent uh, kind of way where we can maintain all of our autonomy, as it were. But uh, yeah, we're open to all various options and possibilities. So bringing intelligence to the discussion, that's a great uh, catchphrase and slogan. Uh, before we get into that, though, of course, and we are hoping to have a little bit of intelligence backing today's approximate 90-minute live stream, how was it that we first managed to cross paths. Do you recall? I have a pretty good idea how I first uh, heard about you, but do you remember when you first heard about Jaffe? Yeah, yeah, you were definitely one of the listeners. I don't remember if it was on Dark Matter. I believe it was because a good portion of my time was there. And then afterwards, we'd have some after shows and just talk amongst us. And then you came in and I recognized your intellect. And also the questions you were asking about me personally and about my experiences. I knew something about you was an intelligent person, not to mention you had the radio voice. So the combination of intelligence and the radio voice had you stand out in my mind where I knew one day you'd be doing exactly this. And I'm actually really honored to be on your show. And I got to say, I knew this would happen. I knew you would make it and I see great things for you. It's much appreciated. So, yeah, we've been plugging it out here for the past couple of years. There was a dark night of the soul period that uh, um, I went through for a short period of time uh, back a little more than a year or so ago now, I guess. So that was it's always trying, though, asking yourself, what the hell am I doing here? And, and really, is this what I'm cut out to be doing? So. But given the fact we have now over a hundred plus shows under our, our belt, I figure why not let's just uh, let's stick to it and, and see what comes of things. So big shout out to 
uh, the handful of people that have dropped by and joined us here in the live stream chat area on YouTube. Bathtub Jen dropping by for this week's live stream. Uh, Joe Eminon, that's Pirate Joe, let's not forget too, out of Long Island, the Suffolk County region of Long Island, New York. Great to have him in the house. And there's a few others too that are just checking us out from the sidelines there, lurking more or less as it were. So uh, you know who you are. You're welcome to sign in to Google if you do have an account and join us here in the chat area. But uh, yes, uh, Bill and Nancy Burns, the Future Theater Radio program they put together, the show they had with you a couple of years ago. That's where I first managed to hear about Dr. J and the fact that you were suddenly out of the blue being chosen to serve as the, well, now late, unfortunately, great U.S. late night radio show host Art Bell, uh, his producer. So that really was quite something that caught my ear. I was quite impressed by that, of course, and was sure to tune into the show. That was a, a real classic episode. Uh, do you remember much from the conversation you had with Bill and Nancy? Oh, of course. I, one of the questions they asked me was, how do I get so many guests? Because at that point on Dark Matter, I was doing three nights a week. And even before that, when I was on Revolution Radio, I was doing four nights a week, sometimes five. And honestly, I've never had a problem finding guests, aside from publishers sending me books all the time. And I guess it goes back to even before I started radio, when I started attending events and paying attention to lectures, because what happened was growing up watching all these documentaries and seeing all the who's who uh, of ufology like Stanton Friedman, Travis Walton, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, Roger Lear, the late Roger Lear, the alien implant doctor. There was always questions I wanted to be asked from the people who were interviewing that never seemed to be answered. And that was really bugging me. And I could tell you the one turning point that really changed everything. This goes back to February of 2012. I went to Conscious Life Expo as a customer. As a regular person, I paid my way in. And for the bigger guests, like Travis Walton, you had to pay another $25 for what's called a workshop. And so I remember after he did his lecture, I stood in line to ask him a question. And the question I asked him, because studying uh, ufology since literally 1984. Uh, I know that for a lot of people who have been abducted by extraterrestrials that they are repeat abductees. So I said, uh, Mr. Walton, I have one question for you. Ever since your incident in November of 1975, I believe it was, have you ever been abducted again? And he gave me a one word answer. It was no. Next, he went to the next person. And I got to say, I was pretty frustrated. So when I started working with Third Phase and Moon, and they realized that I had a lot of this knowledge and connections to a lot of these people in ufology, and so they would have me book them for their YouTube channel so they could use their UFO footage that people submitted them and also have Skype video 
interviews with them. They asked me to write questions. I got to tell you, I was way more than happy to do so because finally, for once, I was asking the questions I had been wanting to be asked for so long. So to me, even though to them it must have seemed like work, it was just a joyful thing to do. And then by accident, we did three documentaries together. Alien Human Project Part 1 and 2, which were featuring Dr. Roger Lear, uh, of course, before he passed away, and his alien implants, and another one based on alien abductions, uh, which was called Alien Abduction Diaries. The order that they were filmed was Alien Human Project Part 1, then Alien Abduction Diaries. And then when Alien Human Project Part 2 came, it was ready to be filmed, the cameraman couldn't make it that day. So I decided to go up and do it. And so I was the one who was asking Dr. Roger Lear all the questions. That's when they started to recognize that I'm not only good at writing the questions, that I'm actually good at asking them on the spot as well. And I got to say law school helped a little bit with that because I sort of take it with a lawyerly angle. You know, you have to pay attention to what the person is saying. Uh, For instance, in court, if you ask a question again that they've already answered, you're going to get an objection of asked and answered. And so once they realized that I was able to do that on the the fly, and I told them that I was starting a radio show, and I was going to use it under my own name, Rome, they told me to go ahead and use it under third phase of moon. And what they would do is they would take about 20 minutes or so and use their UFO footage and put it on their YouTube channel. So that was the beginning of... uh, what you could say, my radio career. It's had several names in the past from uh, Rome, Researchers on a Mission, Researchers Radio, Third Phase of Moon Radio, and, of course, Dr. J Radio Live. Now, you're setting me up for a bit of a a softball there because of what we were, in brief, just covering in the pre-interview, but uh, I'm not sure if I really want to go there right at this very moment, how the name actually came about because there is a bit of a backstory there and something that even your longtime listeners will probably be quite interested and and surprised by hearing. Uh, But I was hoping that we could just kind of back things up a little further before we get too carried away here because you've really opened up a lot of doors there and, uh, you know, we could take the conversation off into any various sort of direction uh, you mentioned these lawyering skills, as well as just the innate ability some people have. That is really critical, of course, too. I think we can both agree, and probably many of our listeners as well, that's really critical. Playing the role of a host, you need to have uh, that in your checklist or checkbox list of items, the, the toolbox, more or less. That needs to be uh, in decent working order, of course. So. You know, this isn't the first time we've had you on the show. It is the first feature show that you've agreed to do and the chance, the opportunity that we've actually managed to put something together with you, which even this date itself, it had been booked. Our earlier former guest, Suzanne Marr, who is the leading personality and person behind the Bye Bye Blue Sky Project, which focuses on chemtrails, geoengineering, harp technology and the like, she had to cancel, unfortunately, because, as it turns out, has come down with a a host of afflictions, not quite along the lines of what you found yourself having to deal with, but similarly serious and to the point where it has 
put her out of action, of course. We got a picture of her in the streaming slideshow. Once again, this is not the first time you've necessarily dropped by and joined us, engaged us here live on the air. As you'll probably recall, you were a part of this past year's Operation Secret Santa. You dropped in for one of the live streams that we put together there. That was a, a lot of fun, of course, and it was really great to connect with you. Unfortunately, you were not in the greatest of condition, and uh, you could really hear it in your voice. What a difference six, seven, maybe, what is it, eight months makes. You've really uh, managed to take the bull by the horns, as it were, and get your health back on track. So let's back things up a little bit. Uh, if you want to get into the whole health business, that's fine. We'll hand the uh, floor or the, the mic over to you here in just momentarily. But I'm thinking as well, too, we should provide listeners with a bit of a, just a brief biographical sketch or, or overview. And if you want to include your health particulars as well, feel free. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many facets to my life, it'd be pretty hard, but I'll do my best. I guess you could say with regards to UFOs, even before I've ever seen something in 1984, for some reason, I just knew we were not alone. I remember uh, the first time we were talked about Jesus in Sunday school, the first thing that pops out of my mouth is, oh, he's an alien. And they were asking me why. I said, oh, because the Virgin Mary uh, was a virgin. And of course, I hear about alien abductees who are females who get impregnated by extraterrestrials and therefore they have these hybrid babies usually taken out sometime between the first and the second trimester. But nonetheless, 1984 was a very pivotal point. My family, my father being Greeks, of course, we had restaurants and me and my brother were hanging out at the strip mall behind the restaurant. There was a, a Salvation Army and we would constantly go there as children looking for toys. And so I remember as I was walking out of it with my brother heading back towards the restaurant, something caught my eye above us. And it was, you know, silver glistening. And if you could picture 1984, people riding bikes, you know, with the curved handles, very tight shorts, things like that. There was a bike rider coming by, and I said, hey, mister, mister, what's that in the sky? And he said, a weather balloon. I said, no, it's not. And I remember his reaction. He literally got off his bike. His eyes were so transfixed on the object, his bike literally just fell over. And he never even looked at his bike. His eyes were literally stuck at it. I remember I ran inside to grab my mother at the time. And the best way I could describe it, of course, speaking as a child of the time, was that it was an upside-down metal cereal bowl. Think about that. What is that? It's a dome-shaped object that is made of metal, and it was definitely defying all laws of our known physics. Then what happened was, is because my family came from Greece, I was never given an allowance or anything like that. I was taught the value of the dollar from a very young age by having to work at the family restaurants. And so what I would do is every week I would look at the classifieds and I came across this one ad where this person was selling UFO videos. Now, they were bootleg videos. They were all on VHS that he made copies of. And they were everything from documentaries that were out to things like sightings, uh, unsolved mysteries. I literally bought every single copy of everything he owned by the time I was done with them. Now, flash forward to 1990. 
I'm still very involved in watching everything about UFOs, wanting to know, uh, wanting to see more and more video. And, and this is the age where more and more camcorders started to be available. So more footage started to come about. So first, my fascination was what do these objects look like aside from what I saw in 84? Then I started to see more. And then my fascination came to what are the beings inside? And two things happened in 1990. One, I was in Greece with my family, and we were taking a taxi ride through a forest going from one village to the other in the middle of the night. And there was literally no light except for the headlights of the cab and the stars and the moon. And I remember being at the back driver's side window, the passenger, uh, the, the rear driver's side door. And I looked up and I said, what's that? And of course, the cab driver blew it off. But then, of course, everybody in the car started paying attention. And the best way I could describe it was, it was a ball that was the color of the moon, only much, much brighter. And it was being followed by anywhere from 10 to 12, give or take, smaller balls. And it wasn't going in an arch. It wasn't going down towards the earth. It wasn't going up in the sky. It was extremely silent. It just literally went across. So we talked about it for a little bit. And then, of course, conversation changed. We arrived at the village in the middle of the night, early in the morning for that matter. And I remember when I woke up, this object was the sole focus of everything in Greece at the time, from every news channel, from every newspaper. For three days straight, everybody was talking about it. And this is the time where we had the Soviet Union and uh, United States and both released statements saying we had no incoming satellites or rockets or shuttles or anything like that. Not too long after that, when I was in school, if you recall in those days when you were doing art, what the teachers would do is they would give you newspapers to cover your desk. It just so happens that the LA Times that was on my desk was of this article of this UFO landing in a park in Russia. And these ETs coming out, one ET standing on top of this extraterrestrial craft, another person trying to take a picture of one, and one of these ETs had this little, it was described as a glass tube. It didn't shoot anything, but whatever it did when it pointed it to this gentleman with the camera, he apparently froze. And then when he took off, of course, he had no memory. So those were the two pivotal things that uh, really skyrocketed me to into paying way, way more attention. And then, of course, there happened to be more videos, and that's when you started to get your first glimpse of what the actual extraterrestrials look like. I got to say I was very disappointed with the alien autopsy. Uh, you know, I was hoping that was real, but it wasn't. So let's flash forward to several years. Then I started college. Uh, right after high school. And I got to say, I was very lost. I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. So I remember reading in UFO magazine. I was a very early subscriber of that. And what it talked about was that Moscow University was the first university in the entire world that was having courses in ufology. And I remember I was only dreaming if there was a way that I could go there, how can I study ufology? So I was playing around with astronomy classes, physics, and this and that. Then something happened within two months. And that was when one of my friends invited me to my very first rave. I was 18 years old. 
actually 17, going on 18. That night literally changed me into a monster. I started going every week. Then I started going every Friday and Saturday. Then I started going every Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Before you know it, I was going seven days a week because there was always either a massive rave or a weekly club every night of the week, somewhere within Hollywood, uh, anywhere within a 75 to 100-mile radius from us. And not too long after I turned 18 is when I founded company. And here's the irony that you were uh, referencing to earlier, which I don't think anybody really knows this who's been listening to any of my shows over the last six years. The company was named Ravers on a Mission. And not too long after that, the word rave sort of had a negative connotation to it. So I started using the acronym R.O.A.M. And then as I turned 21, I started doing a weekly. So I decided to move the dots and just keep it capital R-O-A-M. Uh, some of these shows were fairly massive. I remember November 23rd, 2000 at the Proud Bird, which was right by LAX. There was over 10,000 paid customers there, uh, four different areas. And if we didn't have that outdoor areas, the main area, several thousand people wouldn't have been able to come in. That same year, Herb Magazine ranked Rome as the sixth largest promoter or promotion company. Promoter can mean two things. It could be the people who produce the events. It could also mean the people that I, for instance, would hire to promote my events. But in this case, they were talking about people or companies who produce the events. And I was always, it was my baby. It was my company. Even though I had brought in a financial partner in, I had 51% and he always had 49%. So I always had overriding decisions. So I did that throughout college, university, and even into law school. And then I sort of shifted gears because what I started to see was that a lot of the top DJs would travel with lawyers. And so I figured, hey, well, that'd be a fun job, you know, uh, getting free first class flights around the world and traveling with limousines and having all these women throwing themselves at you and, you know, getting comped food and all sorts of stuff. And it just seemed like a great thing to do. I don't know what changed in law school. Maybe it was the fact that I started to like trial advocacy so much that I sort of started to back away from that. But something else happened. Ufology started to emerge back in my life. Specifically, what it was, was the anniversary of Roswell. At the time, I'd known about Kecksburg, and I'd known about Roswell. So because it was the 60th anniversary, 2007, they were playing everything from China's Roswell, which included a crash from 10,000 years ago, to Mexico Roswell, to Texas Roswell, which is the Aurora 1896 or 1897 crash, uh, to Rendlesham, you know, the British Roswell. And I was just blown away. So what I did was I lived across the street from the infamous Grove on 3rd Street in West Hollywood. So I walked across the street to Barnes & Noble, and I was looking for a book on UFOs. I found one, and I bought it, brought it home, and started to read it. And I got to tell you, Jaffe, I was very disappointed. It was written by a skeptical scientist who was trying to use our known laws of physics to try to say, well, it's possible they may exist. However, we're never going to have an opportunity to get there. The only way we would do so is if we create these self-generating robots. And even then, 
we, you know, we wouldn't be alive long enough for us to even find out what's available or what's there if there's anything there because it would take so long to get there, traveling in a linear fashion. So the very next day, I went back to Barnes & Noble and asked him, don't you have any other books on, on UFOs, unidentified flying objects, that better than this? Obviously, they wouldn't let me return it, but they did find one that was sort of hidden, and it was the only copy. And it was a book called UFOs Over California. As a matter of fact, it's right here in front of me. Hands down, out of all the books I have, it is my favorite, partially because it's based in California. I read this book cover to cover that first night. Same thing the next day. I'm a very fast reader. The author was Preston Dennett. At the very back of the book, it says, if you have any questions, right here, I'll read it to you right now. To contact the author, please email him at Preston, Preston at packbell.net or write CEO the publisher. So I emailed and sure enough, he responds and he gives me his phone number. What I noticed was his area code was the same as mine. So, of course, I met him for dinner, and I was blown away because aside from those crashes that I saw on History Channel from the anniversary, his book covering California had so many different crash and retrievals that it literally blew me away. And then, of course, he released other books on different states. Uh, for instance, UFOs Over New York. UFOs over Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and so on and so forth. And I would say that was probably the biggest crash course I had on ufology, which ultimately set me on the path. Now, there's one more element to the story. So I finished law school, and I told you about this incident where I went to Conscious Life Expo. And because of my production background producing events. And, and let me say this. If you can produce a rave, you could produce everything from a movie to a wedding to anything. I mean, I produced canned food drives for the poor. I produced fundraisers. I produced toy drives for Toys for Tots. You name it. It's all four simple things. You obviously need a venue. You need good production. You definitely need the talent. And then, of course, you need promotion. So using those four things, I was talking to all the who's who, as I mentioned, Travis Walton, when he gave me that one word answer, which I was disappointed. I made sure afterwards to, you know, get his contact information, telling him, look, I don't know what I'm going to do yet if I do anything at all within ufology. But in case I produce events, I used to produce large scale events. I'd like to get your contacts. So I had all these contacts. And I was constantly watching YouTube. This was obviously the rise of YouTube and the rise of people posting up UFO footage. Now, let's go to 2012. This was a very pivotal year. Third Phase of Moon was in its infancy. And there were some great videos I was constantly watching on that. And that was one of the first channels I had ever subscribed to. And one day I was watching it. And there was this interview with this guy named Robert Bingham. And he had claimed that he can summon, that's what he said, summon UFOs at will. And they showed some footage. And I was blown away because this was literally downtown. I mean, less than 15 miles away from me. So I was really upset that I had missed it. I didn't know there was an announcement of it. So I continually watched it, having that in the back of my head. Well, it didn't take very long for there to be another post, which was probably about two, three weeks later. And it was Robert Bingham again. 
And this time what he was doing is he was advertising for anybody who wants to see any of these flying saucers or UFOs in person and watch him summon them, as he would call it, to be at the certain place in downtown, which was MacArthur Park, on a certain Saturday at noon. So I decided to go. I figured, well, it's such a short ride. If I see something, great. If I don't see anything, big deal. I'm downtown. I can go home. It's a weekend. I'm not going to be stuck in traffic. Well, I got to tell you, that day really changed my life because not only did Robert Bingham deliver, I filmed two crafts in the same frame. And my footage was the best that of everybody else who was recording. So that's when I reached out to Third Phase of Moon and sent it to them. And that is where my relationship started with them. And from there, I became their correspondent, then their producer. And that's how the whole history began of essentially my entire life. You did ask me about my health. I'll tell, I'll briefly touch on that. Uh, unfortunately, I was a victim of a hit and run in 2007. And I've had multiple surgeries since then. Even though I've had multiple surgeries, I was still a skydiver. I still finished law school. It wasn't hindering me from doing anything. But surgery number 24 was very different because that day, what happened was the anesthesiologist wasn't paying much attention to me. And what happened was is I aspirated, meaning that saliva went into my lungs. So I woke up, and by this time, I mean 24 surgeries, I kind of knew how to work the system to get out as soon as possible. Usually in order to leave the hospital or surgery center, they want to make sure you're not only awake, use the bathroom in both ways. They also want to make sure you walk to the bathroom unassisted and that you eat a full meal and hold it down for at least 30 minutes. So rather than waiting for them to bring the food, I would always have one of my family members have food ready. That way, the moment I'd be awake, I would already be pulling out my IV, walk into the bathroom and back. So before the nurse could even come check on me, I was dressed, I had eaten, I was ready to go. So on the way home, I was coughing up some liquid. Again, I didn't think much of it. I just wanted to get home and sleep off the grogginess from the anesthesia. So I went to sleep, and I don't remember what I was doing when I was sleeping, but my family was checking on me because I was staying with my brother, my mother, and my father after the surgery. And what they said what was happening was every time I would inhale, I would gurgle, and then I would sort of stop breathing. And then when I'd finally exhale, I would have like a little mini seizure. And again, it seemed like I was choking on fluid. Uh, the only memory I have is the paramedics waking me up and literally yanking me out of my bed, taking me to the hospital, telling me I'm not going to survive the night unless they intubate me. And even if they did intubate me, I have a small percentage, small chance of waking up. And then, of course, came the um, medically induced coma. Because if I didn't have that, then I wouldn't survive. And even with that, I had less than a 1% chance. And I didn't believe what they said. I, mean, I knew I was a fighter. Nonetheless, you know, that was done and over with. I recovered. I thought everything was well. But unfortunately, the pneumonia started to come back and kept coming back and back and back. The problem was, is every hospital I went to it was giving me the same treatment, which was prednisone, antibiotics, and inhalers. Now, when they're all doing the same thing and you're having no results, I mean, that's the definition of insanity. So this continued on for a couple of years. 
And so I've gone to several hospitals at this point, several pulmonologists, and finally I made my way to UCLA. Before I went there, they had asked me to do some imaging of my lungs and everything else, uh, every test possible. That way, when I could go there, they could be more informed as to what was going on. So I remember the doctor, he had the screen turned his way so I couldn't see what he was looking at. And of course, he could tell the symptoms I was having and everything else that he couldn't tell, but he was asking me was always a yes. And I remember when he was looking at the screen, he made this face that seemed like a little surprised, but a little bit scared. And he said he had to go get somebody. In comes in this other doctor who's not just an MD. You know, she's an MD slash PhD. She introduces herself to me and says that she's the head pulmonologist for all of UCLA. She's also the teacher of pulmonology, pulmonary medicine at the UCLA campus. So she showed me my lungs and my left lung was completely collapsed and full of pneumonia, and the bottom half of my right lung was also completely collapsed and full of pneumonia. So I didn't even know this, but I was breathing through half a lung. Well, that started a whole new set of problems because what ended up happening was the pneumonia was not bacterial-based. It was actually fungal-based. And by giving me antibiotics over and over and over and over again, what they did is they destroyed my immune system, which unfortunately made me autoimmune and gave me the symptoms of AIDS. So as you mentioned, you know, I was very close to death. Everybody thought I was, you know, dying from every hospital, every doctor, even at that Christmas time, people that I haven't seen in years and family from Greece that I hadn't seen for decades, all flew in thinking that there wouldn't be another time they would see me. And I got to tell you, Jaffe, the one thing that I did that finally turned everything around was I decided to stop doing what the doctors wanted me to do because they were killing me. And the moment I took control of my own life, stopped taking all their medicine, don't listen to them because what they wanted me to do was stay in bed, don't talk, and don't move. What does that do to you after a year, year and a half? You lose your muscle, you lose your ability to talk. I mean, you're pretty much a dead man at that point. You're very close to death. So if it wasn't for me, disregarding what the U.S. medical system wanted me to do, then I would have been dead. But that is why I am here today, alive and well, broadcasting again and getting ready to skydive again. Well, that's pretty much uh, going to, I guess, cover a lot then and answer a few of the questions many of the listeners may have had. We've got uh, a lot of activity if you just shift your focus and gaze over to the YouTube area, number of questions coming in for you already. We're going to set them to the side for the time being. We've only got another, well, maybe 45, 50 minutes or so, let's say, for the balance of the conversation here. So we'll try to let listeners have it in a little more rapid fire to and fro fashion here, potentially, given the number of talking points we're hoping to cover, but wow, what a great overview, extensive, detailed, and once again, should really help to flesh in a lot of the areas where people would otherwise not really have the clearest idea of who Dr. J is and what he's all about with respect to his backstory and the like. So amazing stuff there. I'm just wondering now where the best place to 
pick up the conversation would be probably turning once again our eyes and view to the YouTube chat area. Just a big shout out and word of thanks, tip of the pirate hat here to Bathtub Jen, Pirate Joe Eminon. We have Free Cosmos, aka Tom Schaefer, of course, founder and CEO of the Freeples movement, free people of, of the cosmos. He was texting under the guise of Tommy Shutter. Now that uh, I actually managed to scroll up and see exactly what was taking place there. Nathan Tafoya as well, let's not forget. This is somebody, in fact, I think who possibly you've had on your show. He says it's been a long time. Great to, to have you back in the mix. Have, uh, was he, in fact, one of your previous guests? Uh, I know you've had uh, quite a few, of course, including the likes of Governor Jesse Ventura and yes. uh, who are some of the other we've got this, the names, Travis Walton as you mentioned, and the whole the whole list, just endless number of really high profile personalities, people within not only the world of ufology, but also politics, and I think a little bit of entertainment there as well too, magician why is his name escaping me now? I should know the uh, the goth magician that you have. Dan Sperry? There you go. Dan Sperry, of course, yes. And so on and so forth. But Nathan, uh, Nathaniel Tofoya, did you have him on your show at one point or another? You know, I Nathan, please don't be offended. There have been so many guests, and if they weren't repeat guests and they were quite a long time ago, it's a very big possibility I would have to know more of the topics that we talked about, and then it would ring a bell. Of course, I know a lot of Nathans from listeners and people who've been on the show, so I'm trying to narrow down to which one particular, but just by the last name doesn't ring a bell. But I want to thank him, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We had him on uh, one of our live streams uh, just a couple of months ago now, and an amazing story, uh, someone who definitely would make for a great fit uh, if uh, you're interested in taking a look at his story, you know, definitely worth uh, having a bit of a conversation with. We got a couple others that we can share with you here, too. We haven't, I don't think, mentioned. We can maybe talk a little bit more about that in the backstage area after the live stream wraps up, of course, here. So there's a couple of great questions, actually, that. Pirate Joe Eminon is wanting to know if you've had any active jamming on certain topics. If And we talked about the technical issues. Sometimes, of course, it's just simply that we are not capable or able to run things or have things stream out to the wider listening world as effectively or in as a professional manner as we would like. Other times, there are, you know, accusations or... Suspicions of, as Pirate Joe puts it here, active jamming occurring. What are your thoughts on the matter? Jamming in what way? Jamming like satellites or antennas? Well, or basically just the powers that be uh, wanting to throw a wrench in the works and not have your listeners hear the guest clearly and have them get their message or story out. Oh, yeah, that's happened a lot. I mean, especially with some of the high-profile guests who had really personal stories. Uh, there would be sometimes technical problems that even the most technically adept people like Tom Schaefer, we couldn't figure it out, which means that somebody I truly believe was interfering with getting the information out. Can you recall any specific examples? 
Hollywood Undead. Some of the times they were on, one of the members, Charlie Seen, couldn't even get on the show. So we ended up using one of the other vocalists who, who went by De Curls before he left the band because Charlie Seen had some amazing information he wanted to tell. And of course, when you deal with the likes of mobsters and Hell's Angels or DEA, uh, CIA, I don't think the powers that be really want them talking about the things that they do. I mean, for instance, Paul Hellyer, great guy. God bless him for being as old as he is and, you know, still working so hard and still writing books. But there have been lots of times the stream was lost. But fortunately, as long as they were able to be connected on one way or another, we were at least able to salvage it by recording it. But there were even times that for no apparent reason whatsoever, they were just knocked off and we could not connect again. Paul Hellier, or Hellier, a yes. former Canadian Minister of Defense, as I recall, under the first Trudeau administration, part of his yes. uh, Pierre Trudeau's cabinet. So and and then of course as uh, anyone who has followed the world of ufology will know that he has been a high level uh, whistleblower. Now some might even say, and this is one of the issues or questions, talking points that we're hoping to to uh, present to you and just sort of you know bounce off of you and see what sort of response we could manage to elicit. But disinformation as well too. Not just people who are simply maybe delusional, as uh, the skeptics or the professional debunkers would claim, you know, completely out of their minds. Uh, I wouldn't be willing to go that far necessarily, because even I have uh, blogged regarding an experience my father had, and I could share that maybe a little later here, just in the chat area on YouTube. But it was really quite something. So I'm, I've long been, you know, I'm, a, I'm an open-minded guy, but not to the point where. I'm not going to discount the fact there are disinformation type people uh, out there where you're, you know, this, the world of spooks and so forth. Although you did mention getting shut down and technical interference, I can fully concur and uh, would suspect where these individuals are going rogue. Absolutely. That, you know, it's like get them off the air because they're just disclosing too much personal, uh, top secret information or insider knowledge or baseball that the wider, you know, listening world should not be aware of, of course. So, uh, but what are your thoughts just then on disinformation in the world of ufology? It absolutely exists. And there's two big ways of having disinformation. The first would be take a big lie and surround it by a lot of several truths. The other is to take a big piece of truth and surrounded by a bunch of little lies. They both work very effectively as long as you're mixing truth with lies because if you just throw a complete lie out there, people will usually see it. A very big thing is corroboration. One of my passions was in studying psychology and human anatomy, even if I'm not with that person uh, looking at them and seeing what their mannerisms are like. Even in their voices, sometimes you can tell whether they're speaking from the heart or memory, or that they're embellishing the story a little bit. So there's been uh, lots of that that I've seen over the last six years, that's for sure. Yeah, there's definitely been accusations of the sort made, you know, repeatedly. So it's, it's, it is hard to, I think, to suss out and to distinguish between just the straight goods, as it were, 
versus you know total malarkey. But as you put it, there are ways of doing that, of course. And you know, sometimes two people are just misinformed. They're not. They don't know what it is exactly they're talking about, or they've. Uh, they're just repeating something that has not been clearly fact-checked and that sort of thing, of course. So, uh, Carla Flower, big shout-out to Let's Not Forget Her. We've had up to now a little more than half a dozen people join us here in the live stream end of things. Of course, most of the views and downloads, that typically always takes place with the post-produced end of things, uh, the uploaded content that we share with our archive.org profile all the key links not just ourselves of course but naturally the guest here as well too Dr. J Radio Live uh, you can find in the YouTube show description area so that'll be one place you want to check out for any further information or details maybe you want to contact reach out to Dr. J maybe you've got a decent guest idea in mind uh, maybe you've had a personal experience yourself as with, say, the likes of Nathan Tafoya, who has actually, I think, provided a little further detail, clarification here with respect to whether he did the show or not. I thought I had saw something there. Oh, there we go. Yes, he did indeed sh share his abduction experience with Adam on your show. Adam. Who's, who's oh, Adam? of course. Yeah. Adam, if you've noticed a lot of the pictures I sent you that were drawings, uh, black and white drawings, he is hands down probably one of the most credible abductees I've ever talked to. I know he's suffered a lot from what his memories have served him, of what he's been through, but the details he has, unless you are somebody who really, really studies ufology, and I'm talking about beyond obsession, as I have been doing for you know three and a half decades, uh, you would not be able to create the stories that he has. Literally, if I was able to give you all the pictures that he has submitted, and they're all signed, Adam, so clearly the credit goes to him. He is by far one of the greatest people that I always enjoy speaking to because he has conscious recall, and that's a very, very rare thing. Now, he has undergone hypnotherapy. I, Bud Hopkins was somebody he worked with. I know Linda Moulton Howe as well, but... Just the stories he has are so amazing. For instance, being in a classroom with other classmates and this ball coming in and a ball turning into a being. Or he was in the hallway and a janitor was out there uh, and saw this extraterrestrial literally walk through a wall. Or when he was outside playing during recess with the other school children. And a craft just came and literally in front of everybody, if I'm not mistaken, I believe landed. He's also drawn a picture of a sequence of what the ball turning into a being looked like. And also one of the drawings I sent you from him showed all the different craft. And the one scene that I was talking about when he was outside during recess he literally writes the dimensions of the size of the craft, how far above the ground it was. I mean, amazing, amazing stuff. He's definitely someone that, for instance, when uh, I was working with Art Bell and I had booked him Grant Cameron, and Grant wanted to, he had shifted his focus from White House and UFOs, which presidents knew what, to when he had this epiphany of having a download. 
they believe he's had two at this point. So he's shifted his focus and started working with abductees, trying to figure out the messages they're getting and the downloads they're getting and how to remember these downloads consciously rather than having to undergo hypnosis. So he had called me probably about 30 minutes before he was going to go on Art Bell and said, hey, do you know any abductee? I'd love to bring one on the show. I couldn't think of anyone better than Adam. And so I made sure I hooked them up, and Adam definitely took that night by storm. That was for sure. Who exactly then is Adam? He has a last name. Uh, I'm guessing it's some kind of surname. What, what's his? That's what he's publicly known as is Adam. And um, obviously we have to respect his privacy. But like I said, all those drawings that are signed by him. And he's a very good artist, too, to be able to draw in that detail. Um, so that that's the most I could say about him. I, I don't want to reveal anything else that would uh, identify him. Because, you know, the problem is... A lot of people who have been through abductions or contacts, uh, especially those who have been violated by these extraterrestrials and still are trying to understand why them or uh, you know what to make of these experiences, I have to respect that, although I've never been one. And if I had a chance voluntarily, I would absolutely raise my hand and say, take me to your leader, you know, show me your cities, take me anywhere. But... Uh, you know, with regards to him, you know, we just use that four-letter name, Adam. And when I see it, uh, Adam the abductee, or I just hear Adam, I know exactly who it is. And if I heard his voice, I could identify it without a doubt. He's definitely someone that I've worked with for a long time. Adam, the first man. So I'm not sure if that's a, in, a, in itself a, a pseudonym uh, or not. But uh, you would probably, well, is it is the name, is that his first name or is that a pseudonym as well? I can't answer that, but let's just say that I know him as Adam and the world knows him as Adam. Gotcha. So we'll leave that to listeners' discretion and imagination, I suppose. Just uh, one more time, big shout out to Carla Flower. Pretty sure that's... Pirate Joe Eminon's significant other and someone who has been a longtime listener, you know, we very much appreciate their support, of course, as well as all of the others here that have dropped by to engage us here in the live streaming chat. Episode number 123 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Speaking of which, let's not forget, I know we had brought up the name Tommy Shutter, a.k.a. Tom Schaefer, just a little while ago as well. He's done a lot of great work in revamping our website quite recently, so people will want to drop by there, WPRPN.com, take a look at things. You can even put your own member site together if you want, a subdomain of sorts. Dr. J, you're uh, entitled to a complimentary, uh, what amounts to really a, a blog space of sorts where you can put together some photos along with a bit of a blurb and a synopsis type overview as far as your bio is concerned and all of your key social media URLs and the like. So uh, that's just one of the things that we provide to all of our guests. So we'll hopefully we'll set you up with that either after the show or some point here a little further on down the road. Speaking of which we do have a weekly after show. I'm not sure. It's, uh, we call it the Rogues Gallery. 
a lot of spontaneity and magic really taking place generally, so you never know what's going to happen. I'm not sure what sort of time schedule you're on tonight out there in the Western Pacific Standard Time Zone, but uh, you're welcome to join us, of course, and be a part of things. That runs for an hour. Doors are open to pretty much anyone who would like to drop by and put together a little premium Patreon content, really, is what it is. For our Patreon subscribers, we actually did this, as you may recall, Dr. J, just a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and managed to get that up online via Patreon, a little teaser for tonight's live stream. So people who have signed up and subscribed to us via that platform will be able to freely access. I'm not sure if that's really the best way of referring to things uh, free. Well, it's a dollar. Some people have actually ponied up for as much as five bucks per item of premium content. So really, it's whatever you choose. There's a couple tiers of layers of support people can choose to back or not. So really uh, definitely encourage people to drop by there, of course. Uh, and don't forget, too, there's always the PayPal end of things, as well as the Mines Wire Tokens credit that people can provide to other people with Mines channels. And that's one of the talking points, one of the items we were hoping to cover with you, Dr. J, is this business of Mines, the way that you've dropped by there, you've taken advantage of the invitation that we offered you, and you've, you've engaged things, taken a look at the platform, what they have in place over there and I guess from the sounds of things you're really enjoying yourself to this point. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, considering the fact that I've only been using it for a couple of weeks, I'm actually surprised as to how many views. That's why I even opened up two other accounts, one just my name and another one uh Ravers on a mission to talk about the olden days from 1999 to 2005. And I love the fact the token system, I mean, that cryptocurrency has been something that I've been playing with and reading a lot about the last couple of years, and I definitely appreciate the fact that they're running on Ethereum mainnet and that you earn it, too. That's the best part, just by being active. Yeah, that's something where places and platforms like Facebook really have kind of dropped the ball, I suppose, in the sense of, what do we really get out of liking another person's content? Or how are others rewarded for upvoting what we put out there? It's not much other than a little bit of a an ego booster, I suppose, or a, an endorphin release. But it's great to see that, yeah, you're actually kind of rewarded and, and paid to play. It's not so much pay to play as you are yourself paid to play so and and credited for your for your upvoting for your comments for sharing threads for um posting new content of any sort the reminds as well too let's not forget there's that little remind icon on the typically the bottom right side portion of each and every thread you'll see the kind of inverted double arrow icon you click on that the remind and uh that goes directly back to your channel feed. So, yeah, that's uh, great to see that you've got some positive things to say about the uh, Minds.com platform. And we can come back to any of these talking points 
before we wrap up here, of course, too, we got a little more than about, let's say, a half an hour left to go the way things stand here at the moment. Of course, conversation really trucking along and, and cooking on YouTube here. Pirate Joe Eminon saying he does not want to get abducted. Trust me on that. That's a good question that we could throw out to you, of course, Dr. J, because of the number of people who have either been abducted and find themselves either abductees or contactees. And I guess there's a bit of a distinction to be made between those two. Maybe we can uh, just briefly touch on that, the separation between the two terms and what the difference is, contactee versus abductee. And we got people like Grant Cameron, for example, who talk about, well, there's most of the experiences have been reported as positive versus others. You're the professional in this area, so his name is escaping me. You're going to have to help me out. The professorial-looking gentleman with the uh, with the glasses and bushy gray hair, he takes a more pessimistic approach to things as far as stating that a lot of the experiences have been really quite negative. I'm not sure if if you know the... Whitley Strieber, right? No, 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 not Whitley Strieber. It's uh, this other author who... Well, I'll have to, uh, he's got glasses and, and a mustache as well, too, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I wish I could do a little better. Wait, are you talking about the professor, Dr. David Jacobs? Dr. David Jacobs. I think that might be it, by God. Yes. Anyways, the point is there's two separate camps, essentially. One who want to emphasize more the positive end of things, as the Bible says, for example, angels from on high. Uh, but it also talks about demons, too, does it not? So is it? What, what are your thoughts? What are your impressions? Do we want to be abducted? Take a bit of a ride in a, in a spaceship with these heavenly beings or not? Well, it goes to personal preference. A lot of people who have been taken against their will and have been violated a lot of people compare it to have been raped. I mean, they don't have the ability to move. Uh, a lot of their parts uh, are being touched. Uh, sometimes uh, the gentleman will talk about needles being inserted into their penises and, and different things like that, which clearly upset them and, uh, you know, hurt them subconsciously for quite some time. And a lot of people need some sort of escapes. Uh, some people turn to alcohol and drugs. Other people turn to therapy. And then there's those others who take that initial negative feelings and turn it into something positive as they have been chosen. Uh, what I really think is happening is that there's a far larger number of people who have been abducted that simply don't know about it. And I recently found something out very interesting. The way that these extraterrestrials, it doesn't matter which kind, the way they're able to remotely shut you down is they flood your brain with natural opiates, which means that if you drink caffeine, smoke cigarettes and have nicotine or do anything, if you smoke marijuana, then you have a tainted brain and therefore the ability to shut you down remotely isn't nearly as strong as it would be if you were untainted. So this is one of the reasons why they focus on children because of the fact that they are generally clean for that matter. That's what I found to believe. And Jim Sparks is somebody who when he first started to realize that these horrible dreams he was having were not dreams at all, 
but were actually happening. The biggest wake up call for him was he woke up one day having a dream that these beings uh, were in his room and took him out. And when he woke up, he looked at his feet and there was mud on his feet in his bed. And he was like, how can this be? Was I sleepwalking? But the biggest thing that really made him realize it was real was he had a glass door slash window. I don't want to say it was a sliding door because then that would have been a different explanation. But what he said was, is that he had a footprint where half of his foot was inside his house. The other half was outside where the mud had been. That's when he realized the dream he had the night before was in fact real. He was very troubled by this. I I believe in his book, he talked about it costing his marriage. But over time, he started to come to terms with it. And it's actually made him a better person. He even talks about one of the mass abductions he was on, that he saw somebody that he recognized. But of course, he never said anything to that person as he came across them through his normal life. And the term he uses is flowering. He was watching that person to see what that person did, and he said he eventually flowered, uh, and he became a better person. And he started focusing on things like protecting the rainforest and doing things to protect our Earth. Because what I'm starting to realize is I really don't think these extraterrestrials care about us nearly as much as they care about Earth. I mean, if we are just another one of their experiments, and I'm pretty sure... I mean, I'd probably put money on it since there are so many planets and so many galaxies and so many solar systems and dimensions that are inhabited. Even though we are currently looking for Goldilocks planets, well, what happens if you are dealing with an extraterrestrial race that's not carbon-based, that's silicone-based, that does not breathe oxygen? I mean, that expands the scope drastically. So you would have to assume that Homo sapiens exists on other planets in various stages of evolution. I wouldn't be surprised if some are so primitive that they're in their caveman era, their Stone Age, their Bronze Age, and some that are very far advanced than we are. And even Bob Lazar, when he was working at S4, had read we had undergone 63 external corrections to make us what we are today. and. Before Dr. Roger Lear had died, he had coined a term called homo noeticus, and he was talking about the current children because a lot of them seem to be much smarter, more intelligent, and possibly may have undergone the 64th external correction. So maybe are we undergoing that as we speak? In a few generations, are we going to be a different species and not homo sapien? That is very possible. I mean, there's so many possibilities, and there's even things that you wouldn't even think were possible that you have to start to consider. Just like Bob Lazar says, whatever is science fiction, the moment you have the ability to generate gravity, everything that's science fiction gets thrown away and becomes science fact by that afternoon. To me, he is by far the most credible person because... He's never changed his story, and people keep asking him, what else can you tell us? What else are you hiding? There's only one thing he's hiding, and he even basically alluded to it. He said that everybody who worked at S4 had to memorize 22 names of people who were uh, part of this project. And that way, if someone 
in the future comes out and has worked at S4 and knows some of the names, he could corroborate them. So Boyd Bushman, someone who had passed away a few years ago, uh, was a big proponent of Bob Lazar. Um, also had at least one photograph, if not more, of an extraterrestrial. And he said he worked with Bob Lazar. But yet Bob Lazar said not only did he not remember the guy, and he feels sorry for him because he was saying positive things about Bob Lazar. But none of the security protocols of knowing any of those people and not even the fact that knowing that there was 22 names of this uh, security detail was anything that Boyd Bushman had said, which is why when I hear people like Phil Schneider, whose story I would love to believe, but yet if you listen to all his interviews and watch all his lectures, you'll notice that some things slightly change over time. You're coming almost 30 years after Bob Lazar worked at S4. Nothing has changed. And there's actually a new documentary coming out about him, made by Jeremy Corbell, whose full name is Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, a great filmmaker. I've known him for years. You know, I'm looking forward to that because even though Bob Lazar has not said anything new, this will be the most recent time he has actually done anything aside from his 25 year anniversary where he made his rounds on the history channel and he did something he had never done in his entire life and that was actually speaking at an event about ufos specifically the ufo congress in 2015 and the funny part is that bob lazar even said on that stage that he expected a ufo event to be a bunch of trekkies you know wearing tinfoil hats but he was actually surprised to see a lot of intelligent people and it being a class event. Now, will he ever come back? I don't know. I know he was uh, his arms were really twisted by George Knapp and the organizers of UFO Congress. But that is definitely someone I would just love if there was an opportunity to somehow link it to his brain and see what he saw. I, I could be blown away by what he worked on. And one of the things he's been actually saying recently is that he wishes he never talked about it. He says he wishes he could just pretend it never happened. That way he could go back and work covertly on that program because nothing that he's done has been that exciting as working on an extraterrestrial craft trying to back engineer it. And that also brings me up to another point. A lot of people talk about the fact that we are producing alien reproduction vehicles and we're using extraterrestrial technology and craft all the time. Uh, you have people like Andrew Bassiago and uh, the other names elude me, but people who say they were working on Mars with Obama for 19 years and things like that, but it was only like five minutes on Earth. The thing is, Bob Lazar said, out of the nine crafts that were at S4, the one that he labeled the sports model. He said it was basically the prized possession of the government or the black part of the government that you, whatever you want to call it, since they used private security, uh, which is now currently GS4. At the time, it was like Wacken Hut, I believe was the name. Anyhow, he said that they were so careful about that, there is no way they would have let people or any of the pilots get into it and take off past the atmosphere and onto another planet. 
Uh, he said it was the one craft that seemed to be completely undamaged, and he believes it was either given to us, traded with us, or something like that. One interesting thing he told George Knapp when George Knapp said, can we create this? Are we creating this? And he was like, no. Uh, he said it would be akin to taking an iPhone, dropping it off in the wagon train days and saying, here, build us 20 of these in the next week. Here's an unlimited budget. Not going to happen. So I, once he said that, I started to really realize how far we truly are from that. And one of the things that he talked about back in 89, 90, 91 was Element 115, which we weren't even close to at the time. It has since been synthesized. However, there are many different isotopes. But the isotope that we were able to create here on Earth, one atom at a time, by the way, one molecule, uh, and he said it would take 20 years to create even a gram, would not even be usable because it still decays. The isotope of the element 115 that he had been working with was in the island of stability, which I believe he said the term was uh, total annihilation, uh, meaning that it produces all the energy possible and uh, it doesn't decay the way what we created here decays. So I do believe we're a long way off unless there are even further black projects that uh, have these things. Again, this is all up for debate. I don't know if we'll ever know the truth. Even the owner of Skunk Works did say that these black projects are locked up so far into the government, they'll never see the light of day. And that's a scary thought because that just proves that aside from the government you see on every day on the news, like you see the Honorable Brett Kavanaugh trying to get confirmed for the Senate. And of course, you see the Democrats and Republicans in the United States arguing, mainstream media always bashing Trump, but they're not course, they're never going to talk about things that Jen Harzan heard uh, from the owner of Skunk Works at the time or anything like that or any, things like Bob Lazar worked on. They're that secret, not to mention the non-disclosure agreements they have to sign. And if Bob Lazar did not go public with this information, I truly believe that poor man would be killed. That's why he's still alive because of the fact that they were able to discredit him so much. I don't think even George Knapp would have believed him until he found out his name was listed in Los Alamos directory. And that was his proof. And one thing Stanton Friedman always uses of why Bob Lazar is not real is because he says that he couldn't find his college records from Caltech or MIT. But he says that when he looked at his high school transcripts, he was at the bottom third of his class. Then he looked and he found him at Pierce College, which is actually just a few miles away from me. And it was one of the colleges I attended when I was in high school. Yes, I did attend college while I was in high school at the same time. And he said he was a mediocre student. Well, I could tell you from experience, I was a horrible high school student. And I didn't do very well in junior college either. But... Once I started getting into these raves and realizing what I wanted to do in life, and I went off to UCSB, I graduated with a 395 GPA, summa cum laude, and at the same time, I was dean's honors every semester. So if I could make that change, I have no doubt that Bob Lazar could have done and attended the schools he says he has, even though he's been wiped clean of them.
Well, I mean, look at uh, George W. Bush with a, what was it, a university C, C-plus average? You can end up becoming the president of the United States. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't That's take right. a necessarily uh, amazing or stupendous academic record. But, yeah, I think uh, I get what you're saying, and hopefully, you know, most of our, our listeners do as well. Uh, you know, we've only got a limited amount of time here. We've got to wrap things up. So it is best that we try to, if we can, rattle off a few things here in a little more rapid-fire sort of succession. Although the one really big area of discussion, something that we've got to, of course, get into before we put this one to bed, is your relationship with Art Bell. How it was that you first came about uh, meeting him and you know introduced and ultimately led to you becoming his producer honestly it just fell into my lap i can honestly tell you now that i really didn't want to do it for two reasons i didn't want to live in this shadow i mean it took me quite some time to shake that off me and as a matter of fact, if you look on my site, you won't see any reference that I worked for Art Bell, except for one tiny video that I did with Third Phase of Moon interviewing Art Bell for a handful of minutes to promote him. But this goes back to January 2015, when I essentially was a cold call um, asking to produce for his final comeback. And I was hesitant about it because I didn't want it to interfere with my show. So I said I would do it as long as it didn't interfere with my show. Uh, of course, he asked what time my show was. And so I told him it was at 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific, 10 to midnight Eastern. He said, well, that's right before me. So I ended up doing it. And it wasn't long after he got on the air that I realized the way he expected his producers to do work is a lot different than I produced my own shows. You know, I never asked guests for 20 to 30 questions and all this stuff where he did. And unfortunately, pretty much every one of the guests in the first 10 weeks are people that I booked. And to ask people that I've been working with for years, hey, by the way, this time, can you write me questions? I sort of saw that as a fraud, and I, I don't want to say anything bad about this, but I realize that so many people in this industry do that. The problem when you ask a guest to write questions is the guest is interviewing himself using the host's voice, and there's no originality in that. Sure, you may have follow-up questions, but literally, if you're reading a script, that sort of takes away the fact being original host, for instance, like you are right now, you're, you're being an original host. And that's why, you know, I greatly respect that. And I greatly respect Tom doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. And a lot of people on Late Night in the Midlands and a lot of radio shows do that. It's just, I was a little surprised to find out a lot of the more famous hosts require these questions in advance. I was not really aware of that, although... Well, you look at the likes of Alex Jones, for example. I think it's pretty much just live and off the floor. Let's uh, let's have at it, you know. There's no screening of calls whatsoever. So does that take place with Coast to Coast? Art Bell did take his calls live on the air, unfiltered. But Coast to Coast, you have to go through Tom Danheiser for the most part, or unless they have another person. But usually it's Tom Danheiser who wants to know what you're going to ask or what you're going to talk about. 
That way, when he hands it off to George Norrie or, or Ian Punnett or whoever's hosting the name, it'll say your name and say, okay, so uh, Jaffe's here is on the line with us and he's going to tell us about a sighting he had in 2012 or something like that. But I do respect people who do take calls live on air, unedited and unscreened. Yeah, we're basically just having a conversation here, of course, uh, and trying to stimulate and produce just a natural flow to things, uh, to and fro, as it were, with you being in the spotlight, the hot seat. Uh, not myself, thankfully. <laughs> it's, uh, I have been a guest a couple times on various shows, but it's always a challenge. It's a lot of fun as well, too, because, well, you just try to give them the best you can and, you know, sometimes things manage to go over quite well and listeners get the information that they're looking for. Other times things fall a little more flat. But with Coast to Coast, I can kind of understand why they do it. You know, different outfits and operations uh, such as themselves where they are taking these live calls. Because even still, even with the screeners in place, you still do get the occasional prankster or goofball that wants to come in and poop all over your your live stream <laughs> you know so yeah but, it happens it does happen yeah it does now speaking of live streams and the like and the legacy of art bell a lot of uh listeners here probably have no idea that you were just quite recently out to his former house and, and broadcast location there in Pahrump, spending a little time with former Midnight in the Desert host Heather Wade. You actually produced a couple live streams there, one with John Lear, and yes. there was a second which was, you'll have to help me on this one now. What it was a QAnon special with <sighs> Dr. Michael Sala. And uh, let me say this too. Uh, when I was broadcasting the show, not only was I live in Pahrump, I was broadcasting from the same studio Art Bell used on his final run. So it was pretty fantastic. And then not to mention, I got to spend some quality time with Aaron Bell. And uh, I got to teach little Asia Bell how to play Magic the Gathering. So for any of you nerds out there who play Magic the Gathering, the collectible card game, I definitely got her hooked and left her a few decks. And I'm planning on sending her some more cards. And I got to say, me and Aaron's friendship has really deepened. We've been talking a lot since I've been back. So this is a good thing. I'm glad I went. Now, Aaron is his 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 widow. His widow yeah, and Asia's the little girl. Of course, they had a, a, a newborn baby that had just come into the world. Uh was only about one year old, from what I understand. Uh, you know, this is going to put you uh, kind of in the hot seat and in the crosshairs here a little bit. Not sure how you want to handle this one exactly. But there was a coroner's report which came out about a month or so ago now, I suppose, that ruled that he had died, I think was the conclusion, a accidental overdose. So just, you know, we recently have seen Tom Petty and Prince, other well-known musical celebrities in this case, overdosing, passing away because of these uh, supposed accidental, you know, taking too many pharmaceuticals, basically. What do you think happened there with art exactly? Honestly, I wish I knew more. Uh, there are some rumors out there that it may not have been accidental, but of course, you know, Aaron did say it was accidental. What happened was uh, her story 
the baby Alexander so young and Art was an insomniac, she obviously has to go to bed a lot earlier than he does and wake up much earlier to feed the baby. So Art was up late and, uh, you know, she said goodnight, went to sleep. I don't know if he went into the same bed as her or if he was in another part of the house. But what happened was, is when she woke up, he was already gone. I mean, and I'm not talking about gone like within the last few minutes. I mean, cold gone. So, uh, yeah, I mean, she's a very strong woman for being able to tell that story without crying. And that's why I waited some time to talk about that because it is a very sore subject considering you have two young children involved. I mean, and she is a young woman too. I mean, she's five years younger than me. And Art was, geez, I don't want to say double my age, but if you doubled my age and subtracted four years, that's how old Art was at the time of his death. So, you know, a very sad situation. You know, he's missed by many and he will always go down as the godfather of late night talk radio. He started in politics and he got bored with it, started with paranormal. During his peak, he had 18 million listeners. And uh, from some of the reports I'm reading, Coast to Coast went from 18 million from when they took from uh, Art Bell to average 800,000. And sometimes the numbers are as low as 200,000 listeners. I would assume because now you have the ability to have so many other shows and so many other ways to listen. There's also a new show that's a big competition for them. It's uh, syndicated on terrestrial radio. It actually has more stations in California than Coast to Coast, and it's called Beyond Reality Radio. I was their guest this past April, and they're very good hosts. They both came from TV, Jason Hawes and JV. I don't remember his last name, but they were from Ghost Hunters, and one one was from Ghost Hunters, the other was from TAPS the Atlantic Paranormal Society. So I do see them being the biggest competition for Coast to Coast on top of shows like this because in 20 minutes, Coast to Coast is going to be on. And through this after show, we will be on the same time as, uh, you know, George Norrie will be. Look out, George Norrie. We got Pirate Radio Podcasts. With Jaffe and Dr. J coming through. So, yeah. Uh, no, I don't think we ha- he has to worry about too much competition from us at the moment. But I just have to see how things evolve here over time. Uh, it could be a lot of fun. You never know how things might carry along here down the road. You were going to say something? No, no. That was it. That, that was essentially what I was trying to say, that... Uh... You know, with the advent of podcasts and the uh, ability to have, you know, internet on the go, I mean, it's so easy for, you know, anybody who's driving a modern car to be able to hear a show like this from your car. Uh, A lot of times I'm streaming, uh, you know, someone's podcast while I'm driving because we all have that capability these days. I mean, think about it. Our smartphones are even more powerful than laptops we were using 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, with cars having the ability to either use Bluetooth to connect to their system or even using an auxiliary cable, you could essentially plug in and listen to whatever you want. And so that really changes the face for everything. Absolutely. Uh, A real free market type approach to things, which is great, of course. Let the public decide where they want to go, what they want to listen to, at what time, just you name it. So 
it's definitely we're really quite lucky, fortunate, blessed to have this technology at our disposal and plug in and navigate where it is we want to take ourselves out here on the on the internet and the the world wide web, the high digital seas. You know the word you might be aware of this, Dr. J. I don't know how many of our listeners are necessarily. Cyber actually well actually you're you're Greek, so you might know this very well. It means to navigate partly, but it helmsman is the real crux of things there. So somebody who's at the wheel, essentially, and you know, we make these decisions while we surf and, and navigate the world wide web as the helms men and women of once again the world of the high digital seas, how it is we choose to navigate. So there's just yeah, so many decisions and, and options of course. Hey listen, a lot of uh talking points and different issues we could uh, hash over here. Of course we're giving a lot of this discussion uh very from our end at least, a superficial treatment in the sense that we're not really pressing too much here, not having the time to, frankly, because we've got to, once again, unleash and cover as much ground here as we can as we turn things, steer things back around into Skullport Harbor and pull the ship, the good Robin Hood here, up into the docks and draw things to a close. But one of the questions I did have for you was, uh, now you've had a lot of guests on your show, including the likes of Governor Jesse Ventura. Michael Dukakis was another political figure. Of course, uh, almost everyone you can possibly imagine within the world of ufology, from Stanton Friedman to Grant Cameron and uh, even Nathan here, who called in is what he said during the time the one episode you put together with Adam. It might have been more than that, actually, a couple of shows. But one of the guests you had, and you've had him on twice now that I've seen, is a, a very controversial figure, Colonel Michael Aquino, somebody who has been implicated in some pretty serious matters out of, and you can fill in the details here a little better, hopefully, but the San Francisco area, there was a daycare center uh, that was based out of a, it was a, a military facility at the time. I'm not sure the name escapes me at the moment, but uh, he was eventually cleared of all these charges. The allegations, though, had something to do with uh, what people refer to as the satanic ritual abuse, basically. Some pretty serious matters if, in fact, the uh, charges or allegations were to were to bear any real substance. And I guess in the court of law, as things turned out, he was found to be completely innocent. Can you just kind of fill listeners in a little more? The backstory of who is Colonel Michael Aquino, and what was the actual story there with respect to the daycare facility down in the, uh, I believe it was the San Francisco Bay Area, back in maybe the mid-1980s? Well, I could tell you uh, one thing me and him share is that we both went to the same school, UCSB, except he stayed there for his Ph.D. and joined the Church of Satan at the time with Anton LaVey. He broke off from the Church of Satan after Anton LaVey was starting to sell priesthoods for things of value, 
money, cars, etc. And he founded his own temple of Set, which was a little branch off the Church of Satan, except he didn't use terms like Satan or uh, demons or um, Lucifer, things like that, devil. And uh, it's actually not what people think it is. Uh, it's not a bunch of people sitting around worshiping the devil and having human sacrifices and killing babies and using their fat to create candles. The closest religion, I would have to say, to Temple of Set and Church of Satan would probably be Buddhism. As a matter of fact, a lot of former members are Buddhists. And I'm talking about members who have been there for a short time. I'm talking about people who have gone literally the, the full route. And there's actually only one person aside from uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dr. Aquino who reached uh, the level six status, which is Ipsissimus. And that was Don Webb. And now he is, uh, aside from writing books with Aquino here and there, he is now an official Buddhist. Now, I could tell you this. He was in the military. He was a career officer. And he was actually teaching at the U.S. Army JFK School of Psychological Warfare. So PSYOPs was his major thing. Now, he was honorably discharged, not dishonorably discharged. He was never arrested. And the satanic ritual abuse, SRA as it's known, that happened during the 80s and 90s is more of a big myth that scared a lot of people. There's no basis to it whatsoever. I remember even Art Bell uh, sort of threw a fit and I had to tell Art, I said, listen, Art, if you really think he was, you know, involved in abusing these children, first of all, don't you think he would have been arrested? He was never arrested. He was never even questioned by police. Nothing like that whatsoever. I mean, this is just pure rumors. And if he had even been associated and been arrested and not found guilty, he would have not been honorably discharged. He would have been dishonorably discharged. So I can categorically tell you all these rumors are false. He's a very intelligent person and an extremely nice individual. There were several conversations that Johnny Webb and I had with him off air. And uh, like I said, he is so darn smart. I would hesitate to put him as the smartest person alive because that belongs to Dr. Theodore Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. If you don't believe that, it's actually true. He has an IQ of 167. Stephen Hawking was actually the smartest person alive until he died. He had an IQ of 168. So now the Unabomber is the smartest person. But Aquino, of all the people I've ever spoken to on a philosophical level, even in his age, his mind is really together. I mean, he's a really intelligent person and a very nice person. And you also have to have that certain values and intelligence to be able to be the professor at the U.S. Army JFK School of Psychological Warfare. Not just someone who went to that school, but someone who taught other people for I don't know how many years, if not decades, but he had a decorated military career. Uh, he was in there for, like I said, that was his, essentially his job after, you know, he was even in the military, he was publicly a Satanist, and no one looked down upon him. Of course, people probably had rumors about him, but once they realized and got to know him, they 
treated him just like every other soldier. And to have such a prestigious title of being the person that teaches others how to essentially use psyops in warfare is uh, is pretty prestigious if you think about that. So, uh, yeah, I could categorically say that these rumors about him are untrue, and I am actually honored to consider him a great friend of mine. There's no doubt uh, the man's intelligence is off the charts. Of course, very charming, uh, very skilled public speaker, and I'm not sure. What is his age right now exactly? 70s, uh, 75, 74? I know he's in his 70s. I don't know. I mean, I, I would guess it's above. Okay, let me try to figure this out. When he got his Ph.D. at UCSB in the late 60s, he was 26, I believe, when he joined the Church of Satan in 66. So figure that out right there. If he was born in, what, 40, that would have made him... 78, somewhere around that age is he about right now, between 75, 76, 77, 78. I don't know if he was 26 when he started Temple of Set or 26 when he joined the Church of Satan. But I do know it was 1966 when he joined the Church of Satan and 1969 when he left Church of Satan and joined or started the Temple of Set based in Santa Barbara. Regardless of whether anyone who is a self-professed Satanist, let's say, or pagan, which, I mean, that word just simply means country dweller. And, of course, we've we got to remember, hopefully this is something listeners can appreciate and keep in mind, modern-day Satanism is nothing, well, it's a creation of Anton LaVey, starting in, I guess it was the mid-1960s. Before that time, I don't think there was even any such thing that actually existed. The problem, whether people who do self-identify as such are completely innocent of any charges whatsoever and simply just are in individual practitioners on their own separate, unique, autonomous path, whether they've committed any crimes or have been up to any foul play, these allegations of things like, as you say, child sacrifice or group orgies, blood-drinking rituals. Things get pretty pretty wild and crazy, of course. The allegations and uh, accusations of this sort typically come from the ranks of, I suppose, the Christian fundamentalists, generally. I'm not sure if there's anything you know, more than that as far as people who either suspect or claim, based on certain investigations and research they've conducted on their own, Speaking for myself, I really cannot state or say definitively one way or the other. Certainly not an expert on the matter, so we'll have to leave that to the jury of public opinion, I suppose. It's interesting to note, though, you did mention the tie-in with Buddhism, and immediately what came to mind was Zena Shrek and her longtime uh, companion, Nicholas Shrek. Zena, formerly her surname being LaVey. She is the daughter of Anton LaVey. And uh, they were said to have just a number of years ago converted to Tibetan Buddhism, I guess the Vajrayana tradition, the tantric path, as it were. So 
I'm not sure if you know much about this, if you've heard of Xena or Nicholas. Uh, it's interesting, though, what I do know, and I'd love to have both of these characters, or even just one of them at some point, as a guest, I think would be quite fascinating. Uh, we typically, of course, go for a little different sort than what you do with your show and the likes of many others. Of course, they try to focus on the more established names, better-known personalities. We're really most committed to drawing upon the underground, as it were, the unknown, up-and-coming names and voices, personalities, and like that sort of thing. But uh, Nicholas, what he did a number of years ago was put together, I think it was called Charles Manson Superstar, and it was a really great documentary dealing with the whole so-called Manson murders, Tate, LaBianca, that whole messy and uh, sordid affair. A real web of intrigue was what it seemed to produce, of course. But uh, have you heard of either Nicholas or, or Zena? Actually, yes, I do know Zena and uh, her mother very well. Um, I don't want to say who the mother is, but yes. And I could also tell you one thing, too, why Anton LaVey used the word Satan when he created the Church of Satan. He used it to scare off the Christians, people who just by hearing that name would freak out and think it's a bunch of devil worshippers. Uh, that's pretty much it. It was just for the shock factor. I mean, you could have labeled it the Church of uh, Psychic Development or the Church of Statues or, you know what I mean, anything, Church of Fireworks, whatever you want to call it. And one more thing I could tell you about rituals. There's no real rituals in black magic what you would think of of people sitting around in black robes and having sacrifices and candles and chanting all this stuff the way aquino described and also uh, i don't want to say her name but the mother of Zena described uh, rituals and this is of course i was told this off the record is it's for you essentially you can either be a Satanist and, you know, wear your black robe and your pentagram and have all these rituals with coffin nails and black candles and skulls around you. Or you could do nothing. Basically, it all comes down to the same thing. And it's ironic because uh, this is something I actually told Tony Robbins. People pay 10 grand to go see him for his self-help courses, but you can learn everything that Tony Robbins teaches by reading the Satanic Bible. Literally, it is identical. It's all about the law of attraction. So whether you want to have these super big rituals because it gets you more in the mood to throw your thoughts out to the universe of what you want to happen in your life, or you don't have to have a ritual and just have a real strong connection with your higher self and, you know, through meditation, what you're asking of the universe. And this goes again with good versus evil. Do you want to throw evil thoughts out there? Do you wish harm on people, which in turn will cause you problems in your life? Or do you want to be a positive person? Do you want to treat people with respect? Do you want to do everything right? I'm not talking about right because the Bible written by man tells you to do so. I'm talking about right because it's moral. I mean, essentially, it all comes down to that. So that was one of the main things was dispelling 
the rituals because I honestly, before I ever started having these conversations off the record for quite some time, I was a complete believer that even if I possessed something like the Satanic Bible or any of Aleister Crowley's books that, you know, it would bring me these evil spirits, but uh, really, in fact, it's nothing like that at all. Now, I'm not trying to encourage anyone out there. The only reason it sort of fell on my lap was because my brother studies theology for fun. So one day when I was looking through all his different religious books from the Torah, the Quran, and everything else, I saw the Satanic Bible. And I got to say, I was first scared. I didn't want it near me. But then after I spoke to Aquino and really got a breakdown of it, and I read it for myself, I realized, wow, this is not what mainstream media makes it out to be. Even if you watched that famous Oprah Winfrey interview with Michael Aquino and his wife Lilith, you know, some of the people in the audience are talking about these stories of when they were in Church of Satan, uh, you know, they had these rituals where they sacrificed people and Michael Aquino is right there dispelling everything because they don't even have the facts correct. So, again, this goes back to the mainstream perspective on it and because of the word Satan, the negative annotation, which is exactly why, going back to what I said earlier, why Michael Aquino decided to not use the word Satan, devil, or anything like that and actually use old Egyptian gods. Uh, first temple is set. So people don't have that negative connotation, even though it's based on the same philosophy. The word Satan, I do believe from an etymological standpoint, meaning simply adversary. So in some ways looked upon as a, uh, well, the term devil's advocate. That would be uh, one tie-in most certainly. But uh, it's been an interesting and fascinating conversation. We've pretty much run the, the gamut here, of course, and the gauntlet. We're going to head on off to the after show now. We're speaking of Law of Attraction. We had up to 11 people at one time here join us for the live stream. Of course, most of the downloads and interactions going to take place on the back end of things here when we upload the post-produced MP3 to archive.org profile. Dr. J, we do have a number of your links here in the show description area, but if you've just got any further last closing comments or you got some big shows that you want to let people know about, upcoming guests and the like, just anything you want to uh, let the wider audience know about here before we wrap things up. I do want everyone to pay attention when Roger Stone is coming on. Uh, that is someone I've been working very hard to get. And uh, one thing that was pretty ironic is I've been having a lot of Fox News people on. So when I wanted to complete my agencies of NSA, CIA, DIA, FBI, I needed someone from the DEA. So when that person was found and I finally got him on the phone and I was asking him if he wanted a breakdown of the show, he said, no, no, I don't need it. I'm well aware of your show and you have a good reputation amongst us people at Fox. I was actually blown away. I didn't think little old me would have any, you know, inclination that people at Fox News, the correspondents, would have any idea who the heck I am. But then again, I guess all the correspondents 
do talk and, you know, when one gets invited on a show they've never heard of, I, I would think they probably ask their friends who are other correspondents, hey, have you been on this what kind of show? Is it things like that? I can tell you for the month of October, I'm going to focus a lot on having a lot of ghosts on and I am going to also leave some room for some of the politicians because of the midterm elections here in the U.S., which is a very pivotal point in our history. One of the great people that I've had on is Dr. Shiva Ayaduri. He's running as an independent senator trying to unseat Elizabeth Warren, also known as Pocahontas. Uh, the reason why he is not running as a Republican is he said that in Massachusetts, even the Republicans are never Trumpers. They're all establishment politicians. And so in order for him to carry the Trump agenda, the Make America Great agenda, he has to run as an independent. But he is so blatant. What I love about him is his slogan is it takes a real Indian to defeat a fake Indian. And his poster shows him, and it says that slogan, and then it shows Elizabeth Warren wearing a real Indian headdress. And if you ever see that drawing, he calls it the uh, warrior kit. And if you could find it on shivaforsenate.com, it's one of those things that you will never get out of your mind. He was a fascinating interview, and he's definitely going to come back. He's one of the, well, since he's not officially a politician yet, I'm, I'm hoping he becomes one because I do see him doing some great things. But like I said, leading up to the elections, there will be some politicians, especially those who are running to try to uh, either win a seat in the House or the Senate or to try to keep their seat. But this time, since I've not done as many ghost people as I have in the past, I'm definitely going to focus a lot of that for the month of October. Oh, let me tell you one other thing. And this was one thing I got to thank uh, Mr. Tom Shaver for. When I was trying to figure out what name to use with Dr. J, I looked at Dr. J live, thinking of Larry King live, but I couldn't find every single account that was open. You know, some people had Dr. J live, but when I decided on Dr. J Radio Live, I was able to grab every single social media account. So when people want to find me, I make it so simple because all they need to do is remember the name of the show. So if you remember, Dr. J Radio Live, DRJ Radio Live, you can find it on the website, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Minds, Twitter, Flickr, Tumblr, Patreon. I mean, you name it. It's all the same word. And I know you put the links on there, but I just love to say the fact that that's the only thing people need to remember. Dr. J Radio Live. Yeah, Tom Schaefer always able to bring a whole host of creative ideas to the table. Very insightful, very uh, skilled and capable as well, too, from uh, not just an intellectual angle, but also the technical world as well, too. So he's been a big help here uh, with WPRPN giving us the, the facelift. So people going to want to drop by there, take a look at what we got on the go. You yourself, Dr. J, once again, have qualified now. Complimentary subdomain member site is what we're calling them now. The network URLs are a great place to put a little bit of a blog together, pictures and biographical overview, rundown, and all your key 
Dr. J Radio Live, social media, URL, links. Uh, speaking of upcoming shows and whatnot, yeah, we got that Halloween content here, hopefully, as well, with, uh, I think it's the 26th, just checking the calendar here on the fly. I believe it's what we're looking at as far as the roundtable is concerned. Yes, indeed. Uh, on top of that, this coming week, we were supposed to have Joshua Chairs in the hot seat and uh, spotlight as you yourself have been this week, Dr. J. This is somebody we both have known for some time now. Unfortunately, he's been, as of yet, unable to provide us with his biographical material, URLs, and just basically the sort of thing that we require guests to provide. So we've we're still waiting to hear from him. He's kind of scrambling, I guess, around behind the scenes trying to get things together. But we might actually end up having to cancel. So Joshua, if you're if you're listening out there, be sure to get your biographical material and URL web links passed on to us here. Pictures as well too that we can share and incorporate, integrate into the slideshow. We of course have had a lot of great pictures that Dr. J provided us with this week that we've had on the go here. So hopefully people have enjoyed themselves and been able to get something out of. That end of things, of course, always a lot of work putting one of these weekly feature show productions together. So I guess that's pretty much it, Dr. J, unless you want to jump in there. We're going to wrap things up here, reminding people, of course, to drop by and visit us over on Minds.com, Pirate Radio Network, my own personal channel, of course, Jaffe Ryder. Uh, in the show description area, you can find and follow all the key URL links. Well, let me say this. The reason I started doing this was obviously because I wanted to get my own questions answered. I've never seen in documentaries or other people do. But it's evolved from that because really the only thing you can give anyone, I mean, if you really think about it, is information. That's the most important thing you could provide with someone. And the only way we're going to get to these mysteries and to finally solve them is by sharing information. And that's why I always say, usually I try to plug it in at the end of every show that I do, is that I want to remind people that disclosure is in everybody's hands. Please don't wait around for the big governments to sit there and say, oh, hey, just so you know, we've been visited for thousands of years. Uh, we're still being visited extraterrestrials are walking amongst us, craft are coming and going from around this earth. It's not going to happen, folks. The way it's going to happen is by you talking about it. If you've had experiences, don't be afraid. Share it because we are now living in a time where you're far more accepted than you were in the past. So I ask everybody out there listening to please be proactive. Don't just be a passive listener. Whatever you hear is another piece of the puzzle. Put it together and then share it. It's hard to convince people who are dead set against saying, oh, we're not alone or, or we are alone and nothing you could say or show me is going to change my mind. Well, don't worry about those people so much. Worry about the people who have that curiosity and who are at least open to listen 
to what you have to say and open to paying attention to the evidence. Because I believe once a huge percentage of this world population knows for a fact that we are not alone, that we are being visited all the time, disclosure will happen through the people, not through the governments. And that is a message I really want to drive through to every single person who's hearing this live and when it's archived on YouTube. Hopefully we've managed to bring a little intelligence to the discussion this week, folks. Episode 123. Joshua Chairs, if you're out there, be sure to get your biographical material, photos, and social media URLs to us. Otherwise, people can look forward to this coming week's Tuesday night World Pirate Radio news stream. Same time as always, of course, 8 p.m. in the Pacific Standard Time Zone, 11 o'clock in the East, Chicago, New York, Miami. Thanks once again to Dr. J. It's been a lot of fun. We've run a little bit over schedule here, but that's fine. We can work on trimming things back a little bit in the post-production end of things. Heading off to the Scurvy Dog Inn. Maybe the Howling Wolf or the Mossy Wench. We'll meet up with you in the after show here, Dr. J, even if just for a brief couple of moments, all depending on your schedule, of course. So on behalf of Captain Long John Sinclair and all the rest of the crew here on the Robin Hood, until we meet again out on the high digital seas, I'm your host as always, ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally-ho. I know. There we be. Having carefully looked over each of our navigation panel instruments, checking every level, switch, dial, cable, knob and pulley, by all accounts and indications, we indeed see it's time once again to drop anchor inside Mystic Bay and draw an end to another week of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Remember, if you're looking for a little more lively online action, keep in mind we've likely got yet another great free-flowing rogues gallery after show coming up for the next hour in either Skype, Google Hangouts, or Peer.im. Also, if you've in any way enjoyed or found yourself benefiting from the shows we've tirelessly produced over the past two years, you might want to drop by our Patreon tip jar page and lend a little support. Half of all network donations go directly to charity. Help to keep those numbers growing over on Patreon, and we'll be able to extend even more of a generous pirate hand. Looking forward now, to the balance of 2018, we're still not quite yet booked. So if you yourself have a new, novel, intriguing, or otherwise underreported idea, unique individual, or pressing item in mind, be sure to either drop us a line directly over on WPRPN.com or fire us a quick email via PirateOneRadio at gmail.com. We're always open to exploring fresh creative suggestions, intriguing guest ideas, 
cutting-edge discussion topics, and captivating themes. You can further embark on your own personal pirate journey by either liking, commenting on, subscribing to, or just following us via virtually any mainstream social media platform, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Minds.com. So don't forget to become engaged. Until we meet again out on the high digital seas, I'm your host as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally-ho.